Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Startup Sales. Really excited to, for today's guest. We have Scott Sambucci. Scott actually has his own podcast called uh, Startup Selling. And going over the same topics as we are most of the time and has a really good resource. So I recommend that everybody go listen to that podcast as well. Anyways, today, Scott and I are going to be speaking about how to get your first clients and more about like how to target them. So which clients to target, like how to go out and prospect them and find them. It's going to be really interesting. We also talk about hiring your first salesperson and should that first salesperson be somebody with a Rolodex or without a Rolodex and what are the implications with that? So it's going to be a really interesting episode today and I hope you enjoy it. If you're an early stage startup and you need help getting your sales up on off the ground and going from zero to one million, I know it's hard, but it's needed to get going and get that traction. Feel free to reach out to us. That's that start startupsales.io. That's startupsales.io. This is what we do. We help early stage companies get their first sales and get the ball rolling and defining their sales process. So please feel free to reach out. And in the meantime, enjoy this episode with Scott. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Hey, everybody. Before we get started in this episode, I know that you're eager to get going, but I wanted to ask for your help. We want to get the word out there more that uh, this podcast exists. So if you're finding value in this and you really are enjoying this, would you mind please sharing this with your colleagues or putting it on social media as much as you can so that we get the word out there and we could continue to deliver more and more content like this? Really appreciate your help and uh, thank you very much. Hey, Scott, thanks for joining us. You got it, Adam. Good to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and your background and and why we should listen to you? (laughs) Sure. And feel free to ask some questions if I miss anything that you think is important, Adam. So my name is Scott Sambucci. I'm the founder CEO of a company called Sales Qualia. And we help early stage enterprise B2B startups to build their sales process and ramp up their sales. My background, personally, I've spent about 15 years in Silicon Valley. I've worked at three different B2B enterprise tech companies, getting them each of those from basically zero revenue to the first couple of million in revenue. So it's something I've done three different times at three different startups, one in the ed tech space, education technology, and two in the fintech financial technology space. Most recently with a company called Blend. Some people listening might recognize Blend. Actually, at the time that we're recording, they just raised another 130 million Series E. And so I think they're just brimming on the billion dollar valuation uh, company that sells to the, the banks and lenders across the United States. So that's kind of what I've done in my past. And then now, today over the last couple of years, we're a sales coaching company where we work with startups to help them build and implement their sales process. The hardest part, you know, this early stage, still no sales process, trying to build it, putting it together, make sense of everything. S- startups are hard as already, but then you add sales to the mix and psychology of everybody else. All right. So let's just kind of jump into it and talk about the early days of sales. And you have no clients. How do you get going? Great question. The first thing you do to get going is just like, I, first of all, 
the first biggest mistake I see most startups make is that they try to sell to everyone. So if you're literally trying to get off the ground you're, and you're just trying to get going, the best thing you can do is pick a specific target market or a niche. And even if that's just a hypothesis, the addendum to that is say, look, we're going to focus on US-based credit unions for now. And say, look, over the next couple of weeks or the next you know, three months, let's get really specific and dial into that customer base and start talking to them and identifying whether or not what we've, the problem that they have and does our product fit that problem. So Absolutely. I, I think that's the best place to start is just start with a target market so you can get really good at understanding how they view the problem that your product solves. Now, when I'm working with a lot of startups, they all tell me, yeah, but we could sell to this people, we could sell to these people. What do you tell them and what do you suggest to do when that comes to that? I said, great. That's probably why investors are interested in you, right? Their total addressable market is in the, you know, in some case, billions of dollars. And to get to a billion dollars, you have to get customer number one first, right? So you could take a very common example like Amazon, even though it's in the consumer space, like Amazon started with books and then now they've taken over the world. So the same principle applies with your startup because like I mentioned the word problem, and I think this is so crucial to the mindset when you're going out and talking to your target customers, because when you are out there selling, the most important thing you can do is view everything from the lens of what is the customer's problem. And so if you're trying to sell to a lot of different industries, you're trying to sell to Fortune 500s and you're trying to sell to the mom and pop stores down the street, even though the Fortune 500 and the mom and pop store might have the same problem on the surface, everything else behind that is going to be totally different. And so the only way to, to start building some expertise and building some leadership in that marketplace is to focus in so you can get really, really good and become an expert in the problem that your target customers have. Once you're clear on the problem and help your customers understand how that problem should be solved, then that's when a sale can take place. So that's always the way to think about it. I think it was uh, David Packard of Hewlett Packard. He wrote this years ago where he said, most ideas fail, not because of lack of opportunity, but because of lack of focus. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. More recently, I've seen tweets from like Bill Gurley and Paul Graham, where they said, you know, startups don't die of starvation, they die of indigestion. And so going out and trying to sell to everyone makes it so that you don't really understand their problem from their point of view. And so trying to sell to everyone means you end up selling to no one. And it also, I think, will help you, which we'll dive into this later, but in the growing phase, when you actually, now you have your few clients, now how do you scale, start to scale this? So it also helps you there when you're, when you're focused as well. Yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, some of the clients that we work with right now, for example, we, we've, we're working with a, a company that's based in Norway and they've you know, built a platform. They've got some early implementations and a couple million dollars in revenue in Norway, and now they're coming to the U.S. market. They happen to be in the healthcare compliance space. So just think about that for a second. Healthcare compliance. Like that's probably almost a trillion dollar market opportunity. So it's like, okay, where do you start? And so with them, what we did is we pared that whole opportunity down to identifying 30 healthcare systems in the state of California that are best positioned to take advantage of their platform and then taking a very targeted account-based selling approach to those 30 institutions. Because even within those 30 organizations and institutions, there's probably 10 or 15 key stakeholders, influencers, decision makers around that, that purchase and around solving that problem. So now you've got 30 institutions times 10, that's 300 people. 
So you can spend like sending out personalized messages, whether it's you know, LinkedIn, email, phone, conferences, all of the work that goes to creating conversation. Like the more you can focus, the more you can personalize and then create real conversation as opposed to just a batch and blast approach. Absolutely. I think it, it's what's also really good when you're focusing down like this is to focus on what's going to be the quickest and easiest to close as well. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because we, I was just mentioning when we were prepping for this, Adam, that I was on the call with a client that's in India. And I drew out for him, he's in the lending space as well. And he's looking at whether or not to sell to credit unions or non-bank lenders, which in his world, they're similar because they're financial institutions that deal with lending, but credit unions and non-bank lenders are actually quite different, even though they both have the same core problem like we were just talking about. And so he's had a really substantial conversation with the chief lending officer at one of these institutions. And he's trying to, when he was talking to the chief lending officer, she actually had four or five areas within their lending process where he could actually implement. And so now it's like, okay, so I got to put the pieces of the puzzle together a little bit here as a seller and say, well, where should I implement first? And so we drew, I drew out like a very simple two by two matrix. So if you're listening to the podcast, I know it's hard to, to draw the list out, but you can sort of imagine on the y-axis, think of that as value. So at the top of the axis is high value and at the bottom of the axis is low value. So solving that problem that we're identified is the solution to that problem a high value solution to the organization or is it low? Like, okay, it fixes like a minor nuisance or is it something that fixes like a major disturbance or obstacle or obstruction to the way that they do business? So that's high versus low value. Then on the x-axis, you think about on one side is high friction, meaning high implementation costs, high time, lots of integrations. And you think about low friction, which is how do we slide in really, really quickly in order to get some wins, some quick wins. And so just dividing out the solution that you could provide into those four quadrants of high value versus low value, high friction versus low friction, then mapping out the exercise that I had him do is say, okay, within those four or five different areas that he could implement his solution with this chief lending officer, actually sitting down with her and saying, okay, well, let's map this out. Which of these are highest value and which of these are lowest friction? And then that helps you choose how to get the quick win where you can land in that account and then start with something that's lower friction that may not be the highest value, but proves success. And then it buys you some time to then go look at something that might be more friction, but a much bigger win for your customers. And so when you do this exercise, not just for yourself, but actually include your key stakeholder on the other side, now what you've effectively done is create a collaborative environment and you're not even selling anymore. You're just like setting up a project saying like, hey, this project management, let's just figure out which of these projects to work on and by when can we implement this thing and how do we prove success? What are the metrics that we're going to be using to track whether or not this implementation was successful or not? And all of a sudden, voila, you get a conversion. I think that's an amazing exercise that early stage founders should be doing right from the start. They first have to understand what it is, what pain points they're solving, and then be able to map that out, what has the highest value. Yeah. And starting, you don't always have to start with the highest value problem. Like there's like when we, we started, when we were at, when I was at Blend, I mentioned at the top of the conversation, like the vision of Blend when we started was a one-click mortgage, a one-click residential mortgage. Now, the company's been around for seven years and we're still the industry is still years away from having a one-click mortgage, right? 
But when we first started the first implementations, we looked at all of the different pathways, all the, the different steps throughout the lending process. And there's lots of log jams in the lending process where a lender has issues like document collection, document storage, compliance checks, getting approval, selling that loan to an investor, pricing controls. Like there's a hundred different steps in a lending process. So we didn't necessarily go in and say, well, this one step is the biggest value. Like if you could figure out how to approve a loan in one day, well, that's going to take years to solve. But if instead we said, look, doc collection for your consumers, if we can create a really easy interface for your borrowers to begin a mortgage, to just get the basic information and then flow that data into your loan origination system, would that be useful? And to a lender, they're like, yeah, that's one of the biggest problems that we have. And while it's not the, the biggest problem, it was easy for us to implement within months. We could go up and running, get up and running with those lenders. And that was our semi-high value, but the friction was relatively low because all we had to do is build the interface, collect docs, and then send those docs into the lender's internal systems for them to handle from there. And then slowly you can creep into the other parts of the process. Yeah, kind of land and expand. Land and expand. Kind yep. of. Cool. All right. So let's say you've got you've done this exercise, you mapped it out, you started collecting clients, at what stage do you think is the best to start actually building a team and hiring your first salesperson? Oh man, I get that question a lot. And usually it's after a startup team has hired and fired their first salesperson. And so I think the mistake that most teams make is they hire too soon. Meaning that, let me take a step back here, Adam. So when I talk with startup founders, they usually fall into one of three buckets. Uh, people. So there's the one kind of startup founder, which is kind of a bit of an outlier. There's a startup founder that knows how critical sales is. They're actually pretty good at sales. They're good at talking to customers. They're just out there. They go to a conference. They're good at speaking. They have no inhibitions about like leading the charge, leading the crusade in their marketplace. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there are some founders who just feel like sales is a necessary evil. Like, well, I've built this product and like the market should just see how good it is. And gosh, like I'm not good at sales. I don't want to be good at sales because I'm a product person and I'm an engineering person. So if I could just find somebody in the industry with a big Rolodex, they could just build my sales process for me. That's how I'm going to grow sales. So that's the second bucket. And then there's the third bucket, which is in the middle, which is the founders that go like, I know sales is really important. I just don't know how to do it. I'm a little bit scared. I don't want to screw it up. I don't know where to start. And so the problem is the second and the third buckets are where founders oftentimes hire too soon because they're looking to outsource that selling capability. They're trying to outsource that whole process. And so the mindset that I, I try to get our clients to think about and just the market in general say, look, like you wouldn't outsource your product. You wouldn't outsource your core code base. You wouldn't outsource your customer service. Why would you outsource sales? It's a core function of your business. So while as a startup founder, you don't, no one says that you have to be the best salesperson in the world, but you sure as hell need to be able to get out there and, and tell the message and lead the crusade and get those first couple of customers yourself so that you have the footprint or the blueprint or the framework of how to sell. What is the message? Who do we sell to? How do we price this thing? How do we implement this thing? Then once you've got that basic blueprint, then you can hire a salesperson and say, this is what I've built so far. I need you to build on top of it. And so usually when people say, when should I hire the first salesperson? It should be at the point where you as the startup founder, you've reached capacity where you realize I'm either spending all of my time just managing existing deals and implementations, and I've spent no time prospecting. That's usually 
the time to hire someone, or I'm spending so much time on pipeline, getting deals through the pipeline that I'm, I'm not doing enough service to the existing customers that I have. So those are places either at the very front of the sales process or on the back with your customer success team that you can hire first and then slowly move to the guts or the middle of that sales pipeline. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. And one, I want to add two things. One thing is you said that the, like, the kind of founder that doesn't think that they're good at sales. And well, nobody's really good at sales at the beginning. It's kind of a skill you have to learn. But most of these founders that I've seen, they love going and fundraising. Now, <laughs> fundraising is a giant sales pitch about your company. So if you love the sale, if you love the fundraising process, yes, it's different selling to a, a prospect, but it, a lot of the fundamentals are, are the same. And, you know, like you, you just have to get it out of your mind that sales is a scary thing and just jump into it. And after the first 10, 50 calls, you'll start to get into a rhythm of it. Yeah, I like that analogy a lot, Adam, because you can think about if I'm out there raising capital, what am I trying to do? Well, first, I'm, I'm trying to find people who see the world the way that I see the world or, or understand that the world needs to be better, right? There's a problem out there that needs to be fixed. And I'm selling them on my vision of how we're going to solve the problem, where we're going to take the company. And then secondly, the thing I'm doing is once I get that engagement, then the likely that the next thing I'm doing is saying, okay, tactically, this is how we're actually going to execute on this vision. So we're going to use this money to build product, hire salespeople, hire engineers, do all these different things. And when you're selling, that's especially as a founder, that's what you're doing. People talk about the founder magic that comes with selling early on. And so you're finding those early customers that want to follow your lead. They, they're on board with the mission. They see the problem that you see. They know the problem is no longer one that they can tolerate within their own business. And so they're looking for somebody who's going to lead them out of the dark in a lot of ways. That's the first conversation. And then the second part of the sale is just like, okay, so now we're both in agreement that you have this problem and we can help you solve it. Here's tactically how we're going to implement the solution to help you solve that problem. It's like a two-step process. And so that's, I think to your point, it's like, it's the same structure. You're just, instead of raising capital from investors, you're essentially raising capital from customers. Yeah, small increments. So another thing you said was for number two was to hire a person with a Rolodex. And I wanted to touch on that because I've actually come across a few founders that have said, well, I want to find somebody that, that has worked in this industry and knows a few clients already that could just bring us on the business. And it's so dangerous to do that because while you might get a couple of sales and then you're going to go raise money based off those numbers and everything, but then you, you don't know how to repeat that. And that guy's book of business is now finished. And then what? Yeah, this is an important point because I mentioned the Rolodex and I agree with you. I think having a going out and saying, well, I'm just going to find somebody with 20 years industry experience in healthcare or financial technology or education and have that person help me get early sales. There's a couple of pitfalls there. One, that person that has 20 years experience, chances are they've worked at a really large company or at least a semi-large company. So they're not used to the unstructured approach to how you run your business every day, it's their job in the sale might be like one of 10 steps. They're not going out and doing lead gen. They're just getting a bunch of inbound leads that the marketing team is developing for them. They're not the ones doing implementations because they have a whole sales engineering team that's helping them do that. So they may not, while they have a lot of industry experience, they may be kind of rusty or worse, they haven't done the full end to end that you might need them to do. And so 
we've seen this and that's oftentimes where when we talk to teams it's like well we hired this person that had a bunch of industry experience but six months went by and they didn't produce a deal and all they told us is that we need a better marketing collateral and we needed to update the website like oh if we had better marketing collateral and we had a better website then we could close i could close more deals or like oh we need a better pitch deck it's like no 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 these early customers you need to get really really embedded with them and do a lot of the hard work to figure out what this whole system should be. What is that selling system? And so that's one pitfall by hire and when you're hiring an industry, somebody with the big Rolodex. And the secondly, as you identified, Adam, it's that person, even if they do convert some deals, you might not have complete visibility as to how they converted those deals. Now, that being said, one of the people I interviewed on my podcast is a guy named David Chick Kelly. And David is a, an executive at a company called the Alexander Group. And we talked about this very issue. And one of the things that he does recommend in select cases is that it can make sense to hire the Rolodex person under the understanding that this is really a short-term hired gun and their job is to simply create revenue. So he called them a market maker. And so the idea is that we're gonna have somebody come in for this role for a year. You're probably even gonna overpay that person. But if you've got some general structure around your sales process, you've got a target market, you've got a product that works, if you can get this person to come in and make a really quick impact and get you three or four or five big logos, then the short-term boost that you'll get in terms of credibility, learning, revenue can really propel you forward. Now, it's not a role that you can sustain for a long period of time, but it has a function. It's like hiring the free, it's like trading the player, you know, just before the playoff run or, or signing the big free agent so that uh, this is the last piece of the puzzle we need to win the championship. You're sort of hiring, you're buying almost like buying revenue when you hire this person. So, but again, you have to be careful to make sure that person understands the environment in which they're going to be working. But do you think that if you're going to implement that strategy, would that be at the beginning phase when it's your first salesperson or after you've already got initial traction and you've already started to build somewhat of, of a sales process and then you need to really boost your numbers. Yeah, I think it's more on the latter. I think after you at least have some identification of, okay, this is our target market. This is the type of problem that we're going after. These are the kinds of buyers that we know fit our ideal profile. If we could just get access, more access to those people, then we could get some of those deals across the finish line. So yeah, I think like hiring that person out of the gate saying, okay, we've got this product, but we haven't sold customer number one. Well, the danger there is that person will end up pulling you in different directions that ultimately you don't want to go. It's not aligned with the long-term vision of the company because then you end up maybe going the direction of getting some short-term revenue, but that doesn't align with really where you want the company to go. Exactly. And also, I think it, if you're more of a technical product and you're not ready to onboard a client like that, you could actually burn those bridges. So it's better to kind of make your, make your own contacts before you implement that route to make sure your product is is suitable and, and sustainable with some clients. Yeah, I mean, those early implementations, I mean, I can tell you from time at, my time at Blend, they are a bear to get rolling, right? So first, you've got to get buy-in from the executive team on, on your customer side to actually give you money and do an implementation. And then you've got to get buy-in like, hey, like stuff is going to break, stuff isn't going to work, you're going to have problems with the implementation. So you, it takes a a certain type of buyer type that you're going after to have the patience to know that the long-term benefit 
of working with you is going to be worth it. So I always remember the first really large implementation we had when I was at Blend was at a company called NationStar, which is a non-bank lender. And we we rolled out this pilot. We had uh, about eight, I think it was eight users in a call center that were using our workflow software. And we spent weeks building out the workflow. We spent weeks testing, making sure everything was ready to roll. And the call center opened at seven o'clock in the morning in Dallas, Texas. So I was there on site with Devin, one of the engineers and like, okay, we're going to go live because at seven o'clock, like the phone starts ringing. Like that's just the way the call center works. And the reps are either going to take calls or make calls. And we went live at seven o'clock. Do you know when we found the first bug? <laughs> 701. <laughs> 701. Yeah. You know when we found the second bug? 701, 702. <laughs> yeah. And so, and I found this Evernote file where I was, I was logging bugs so quickly. I didn't even have time to put them in a Trello card. I was literally like, like typing them out on Evernote so I could copy and paste them later. And I'm just showing them to Devin and he's there on site. He's wired up and he's fixing these bugs on the fly, just pushing code, pushing code, pushing code. Some stuff is really small. Other stuff is a little bit bigger. And by the end of the day, we found and fixed 24 bugs the first day. And Devin is like, like almost like pouring with sweat. You can just imagine the engineer in the cubicle pounding away on his keyboard. I'm running around from rep to rep, taking pictures with my phone of why the screen doesn't look the way it's supposed to look. We're logging all this stuff. Didn't have a chance to eat lunch, nothing. Like all day from seven in the morning until seven at night when the call center was closing, we were there fixing bugs. End of the day comes and the VP calls us over. He's like, can I talk to you guys? And we're looking at each other like, oh man, this is bad. And he goes, listen, I cannot tell you how impressed I am. We're like, really? He said, I understand you guys had some trouble with the platform today. Like, yeah, found a few things. He said, do you know how long it takes us to get a bug fixed by any other vendor? No idea. It takes us three months. If we find something wrong with our other vendors, it takes three months to get one thing fixed. You guys fixed 24 in a day. He's like, we've never seen anything like this before. And like, we walked out of that office just like, obviously, we just felt like cloud nine. Because what we did is we, we brought that Silicon Valley mindset to this call center in Dallas, Texas. But it was because we had the right partner. We had the right early customer who understood the value of working with what we were going to do. And he understood going in. There might be some hiccups here. I think that's that's something that so many early stage startups are afraid of uh, to have that conversation say, look, there might be some problems with this, but here's our guarantee. We're going to be here. We're going to be available and we're going to be talking to you about it. You know, and setting the picture like that up and having that conversation in the early days will make that, first of all, when the bugs will arise, because they will, no matter how much work you've done already, it gives them, they'll breathe more because they're like, okay, I know I'm in good hands. But also on top of that, I think if you have that pipeline discussion on the early days as well, it also shows them where you're heading as a company and they're also really excited for what's to come and they're going to also have more patience. Yeah, I think that's the key is is just really showing like be, like oh, like saying this is how it's going to go. I think instead of try, trying to wear the shroud of oh everything's going to be great, you know, a lot of times we hear this from founders like, well, I don't want to show weakness. Like, no, actually, that's the best thing you can do. It's not weakness. You're just being honest. Say, hey, we're we're going to install this thing and we're going to test it and we're going to make sure it all works and we're going to go through it a hundred times. Inevitably, something is not going to work the way that we expect. We're going to discover new things that we need to add to the platform or change or integrations we need to do. And that's just part of the process. 
And so one of the things we always recommend with, with our clients is, especially those early customers, when you're making that sale, don't just sell the product, sell the implementation, sell the whole package. Like we, I had this with a, a client earlier uh, this week on Monday, we did a, a big strategy session with them and they're selling to law schools and they have a, a test, a bar exam test prep platform. And as we started mapping out, what is it going to take for them to roll out their software with the students at these different law schools? We realized their initial thought was like, well, we'll send the 50 logins to the school and have them distributed to the students. So, okay, what do you think is going to happen there? Well, probably nothing because none of the students are ever going to read the emails that come from, <laughs> you know, the university, right? They're just like, oh, another email from the university. Exactly. So we dove into this piece by piece, step by step, day by day, week by week. And what we realized is that those first implementations, it's like, yeah, you get to use the product, but it also means we're going to go on site and do training. We're going to do a half day workshop after the students start using the platform and they identify areas where they have some weakness. We're actually going to come in and, and help them do some remedial additional work. So it's almost like technology led consulting as opposed to just selling a product. And so when you're selling your product, don't just sell the product, sell the whole implementation, sell the whole vision and insert yourself as part of that implementation. So that example I shared from when I was at Blend, like we just, it was natural to us. We're like, yeah, we're going to go live and we're going to be on site when you go live in case something goes wrong. Because if we were sitting in, back in our office in San Francisco and seven o'clock hits and the bug hits at 701, we wouldn't have known how would a user report a bug. But because I'm sitting there and Antonio raises his hand, he's like, it's not working. I can walk over to the desk and say, all right, man, show me what's not working. Take a picture of my iPhone, punch it in my Evernote, give it to Devin, and then he fixes it. None of that stuff happens unless you include yourself in that implementation. Absolutely. I think that's also something we need to say for another discussion, but that's also something you need to look for in, a, in your first salespeople as well, is, is people that take ownership like that, that care and aren't just looking for, okay, close the deal. Thank you. Goodbye. Well, and that's the Rolodex. You know, that's the problem you could run into with the wrong Rolodex person. Even if the Rolodex person is like, oh, I've always wanted to work at a startup. I'm so excited and I'm going to get to work, roll up my sleeve kind of person. Like, really? Are you sure? Because you know what that means? That means you're going to be awake at two o'clock in the morning in your hotel room, QA testing stuff from Dallas because the engineers back in San Francisco are awake at midnight pushing code because at seven o'clock in the morning, you're going live. That's what you're signing up for. Just to make sure we're clear on this. It's not just because you've got some contact at some big bank or some big health system or some big pharmaceutical company. Like this is what we mean by startup selling. So let's just make sure that when you say you want to work at a startup, that you know what we're talking about here. And oh, by the way, the hotel you're staying at is not the Marriott. If you're lucky, it's a town place suites with the rubber eggs and really bad coffee. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we're running low on time. So let's, let's follow up with a couple more questions here. What is your favorite sales or leadership book? My favorite sales and leadership book well, I've got an unbiased and a biased opinion. So I'll give you two <laughs> books. So the one book for me, as I was first learning to sell 20, almost 25 years ago, coming out of college, I, my first job was selling college textbooks. I worked for a company called Prentice Hall, which is eventually bought by Pearson. Some people might recognize the Pearson education name. So I was out of college, cut my teeth, 
And I was just voracious finding books and reading a book a week on sales. And the one book that made the biggest impact for me is a book by a guy named Neil Rackham. And it's called Major Account Sales Strategy. It's a very data-driven book. So he went through and looked at thousands of enterprise sales opportunities, pipeline deals, and how they all structured. And he broke out the stages of the sale and identified like a very clear step-by-step process that almost every enterprise sales follows through. And that structured approach I have found over the 20, almost 25 years I've done selling has been almost exactly the same, regardless of whether I've worked at big company or small company, whether I've been in ed tech or fintech. So that's the one book, like if you want to understand enterprise sales and how it's different than anything else you might be thinking, uh, that's the one, one book. That's the unbiased uh, perspective I would take. Now, the biased one I would say is my own book. I just, I just published a book called Stop Hustling, Start Scaling. And it's a book that took me about three and a half years to write. I'm, I'm really proud of it, not because I wrote it, but because <laughs> the content in it is very, very practical. It walks people through. It, it, it's designed for startup founders that are really trying to ramp up their sales are trying to get to a million dollars and beyond in annual recurring revenue. It's got a seven question framework that you can use that I call the Q framework. And every single chapter is a different question that you need to answer for your sales process and for every sales opportunity. And at the end of every chapter, there's actually a link to a web page that's correlated with the book that includes a, uh, a worksheet and exercise and a video on how to use that worksheet related to that specific chapter. So it's not just another sales book on like, here's a sales process. It actually will teach you how to build your sales process. It's kind of like a workbook. Yeah, there's, well, you don't write in it, but there's a whole attachment set of work that you could do and have your whole sales team, sales team do it. So maybe this just comes from my textbook publishing days where I had this desire to like make sure people are actually implementing what they're learning. So that's the way I structured this book. And that's why I'm I'm proud of it because it, I think it is so it's a very tactical book. It's not just like, oh, you should do this or that. It's like we're gonna help you build your sales process. So it's called Stop Hustling, Start Scaling. Is it so on Amazon? It's on Amazon. Okay, I'll put a link in the show notes as well. Cool. So people can just one click it. Cool. Who do you follow for uh, sales or leadership advice? Oh man, great question. A couple of people that that come to mind, top of mind for me, one is a guy named Chris Duggan. So Chris started a company called BetterWorks and a couple of other companies. He was also an advisor at Palantir, and he was the first, one of the, the early sales leaders at WebEx and helped them grow to their first $100 million in revenue. And so Chris is a guy I've gotten to know over the years. He was also an advisor at Blend. The founders from Blend were from Palantir, so they knew him. And so I had a chance to spend some time with him as we were building out our sales strategy at Blend and beyond. So he just has a very calm and very procedural structural approach to sales as well so he's a guy that i would definitely check out so chris duggan is is one person second person is a woman named trish bertuzzi so she runs a company called the bridge group a big fan of the work that she's done she's she wrote a a book about sales engagement and for sales development sales development reps and then two more people that i'm I'm a big fan of is aaron ross and mary lou tyler so they were co-authors of a book a lot of people probably heard of called predictable revenue Aaron has uh, since now opened his own company where he helps companies with sales development work. I've had him come and speak to my group, my client group, and he's just very passionate about what he does. And he's just like, it's like a very no bullshit approach. So I really admire that. Like none of these people are like the, 
you know, slick back hair sort of image that you have as salespeople that's very cerebral about it. And then Mary Lee Tyler, who I mentioned is a co-author of Predictable Revenue. She also wrote a book called Predictable Prospecting. And I'm a big fan of her process for building out ideal customer profiles, getting really clear on how you're going to prospect and engage with your customers. She wrote a book recently called Predictable Prospecting. So those are just four people that that come to mind for me. What one piece of advice do you have for all the founders that are listening? In general or when it comes to sales? <laughs> in sales and sales leadership, it, it might not have to be sales directly, but... So I think the one piece of advice that I have when it comes to startups and sales is make time for sales every day. Sales has to be a priority. It's not something you get to at the end of the week or at the end of the month or at the end of the quarter or after you raise money. Like sales is a now thing. And understanding that you've got a lot of competing interests, you have to fundraise, you have to manage teams, you have to build product. You've got lots of stuff happening every day as a, as a company founder. Nothing else happens in your company and nothing else will happen in your company unless you are selling your stuff. And so even if that's an hour a day that you're spending on LinkedIn making new connections, or it's, it's an hour in the afternoon making some calls, or standing in the conference booth and talking to people as they come by, you have an opportunity to show the rest of your company that sales is the most important thing in the company. It's not a byproduct of engineering. It's not a thing we get to if we have time. Like sales is the thing. And I saw this a lot when I was at Blend. Nima Gamsari is the CEO there. He was the first person to get on an airplane and fly across the country for meetings. He was the first person to sit down and say, guys, I don't even care what's going on with the platform. If we don't get this customer, it doesn't matter. If we don't implement well with this customer, it doesn't matter. And so I saw that firsthand and it really was a pervasive attitude across the whole organization where I had engineers coming up to me and asking me about sales, asking me how they could help, asking me if there's anything else they could do to contribute, whether it was like sitting there while a demo was going on, or if there's anything else that we needed in order to make sure that that deal closed. So if you can show that leadership, that sales is a priority, it's just as important as everything else, then I think it will fundamentally shift the way your whole company perceives sales and it's going to help your company grow. Out of all the companies I've been part of, I've seen that in action and I, I couldn't agree more. The companies that have that mindset and have that, that way of, of running business where clients are, are number one and you, and you have to get that sale, they are the ones that grow quicker, grow higher than the ones that aren't doing it. Yeah, nothing happens until you make a sale. So cool. Scott, I really appreciate you coming with us today and sharing all this. How could people reach out to you if they want to learn more about what you're doing and things like that? Yeah, I think the, the best place to go is our company website, which is salesqualia, Q U A L I A dot com. Salesqualia, Q U A L I A. If you head there, there's we got blog posts, tons of articles there, the podcast of our, of our own called Startup Selling. We've got recorded webinars that we've done, trainings that we do, links to workshops, links to books. We've got a copy of another book I've written that you can get a free copy of. Just download the PDF. So it's kind of like the hub of all the stuff that we do. So if you go to salesqualia.com, head over there. That's probably the best place to go. Cool. And you could also check if for all the listeners, I'll put that in the show notes. So you could check out there and just one click that to get to see that. Perfect. Cool. Scott, thank you very much for joining us. Dude, so fun to be here. I could do this all day. So let's, <laughs> let me know if we do it again sometime soon. Perfect. Bye for now. All right, man. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. 
Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at adam at startupsales.io. 